Hello, it's great to have you with us. I'm your host, John Martin, and you're listening to Search for Truth, your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. Many thanks for tuning in and giving us the privilege of your company. Today we have the second talk in this series about biblical grandparents, and Brian's looking into the scriptures to see what lessons these Bible characters can teach us. Our talk today is about a grandson who sees the reversal of his grandfather's sadness. So tell us more about him, Brian. Right, John. The youthful figure watching the procession must surely have been nervous. He'd been raised in a God-fearing family, so much so that his entire life, which was now stretching ahead of him, was given over to serving the Lord. Why was he nervous? And what was this procession? It was the Israelite army setting out to engage with their arch-rivals, the deadly enemy they knew as the Philistines. But why was the youth nervous? Was there any danger he would be conscripted? No, but something else had been, something he'd developed a deep sense of responsibility for. An unheard-of thing was happening before his very eyes. The ark, belonging to God's covenant with his people, was being taken by the soldiers into the theatre of war. The youth's heart sank, for he felt sure this wasn't at all the correct thing to do with the most sacred object that was housed at Shiloh in those days. He'd a deep sense of unease, and with good reason. But the elders of the people had been insistent that the presence of this sacred object, which symbolised the presence of God, was the very thing to make the difference and reverse recent defeats at the hands of their enemies. One very good reason why young Samuel was nervous about this ill-conceived project was the obvious fact that the elders had never come to the priests to ask God's counsel. In the past, when there had been a reversal of the nation's fortunes in any time of war, the leaders had inquired from God why he'd permitted such a defeat. After all, he'd previously been the one to demonstrate his overwhelming power in the land of Egypt and at the extraordinary crossing of the Red Sea, which had seen all their pursuers drowned. In the past, this process of consultation had pinpointed failures, which, when corrected, had restored victory. None of that this time. The elders had taken matters into their own hands, relying on their own idea of what was needed. The problem was... They were out of touch with God. Nearly all were in those closing days of the period when the judges ruled the land of Israel. His people were chronically unresponsive, so God had been quiet for a long time. But things were stirring afresh in the life of this young man, Samuel. Born in unusual circumstances into a priestly family, he would rise to become a judge himself. In fact, the very last in a long line of judges. He'd be the one to anoint the very first king as the desired form of government changed. God had lately opened a line of communication with Samuel and was moving powerfully in the young man's life. He was to become a force for revival in the nation. But not today. The people were in spiritual decline, almost freefall, you might say. Brought up in the environs of the nation's shrine at Shiloh, Samuel had been coached by his guardian, the old priest Eli. Eli had let things slip. The way he managed his family affairs was not honouring to God. He indulged his son's wrongdoing. He might not have been a bad man at heart, but he certainly wasn't a Moses, 
who, when he saw family members dishonouring God, he shattered the stone tables on which the law had been written by God, smashing them to the ground in his fury at human corruption. Eli was not of such stern stuff. He was a compromiser. God himself would do what Eli had failed to do. In that procession we were talking about, the one that took away the sacred ark into territory it was never intended for, as part of that same procession, Eli said goodbye to his two sons. He'd never see them again, for they'd be killed in battle, and the disastrous military campaign would be capped off by the enemy capturing the ark of God. The news broke Eli's heart, and immediately afterwards his neck, as he fell backwards from his seat. Many years would pass before the ark would be restored to its proper place in the nation. Samuel never lived to see it back where it should have been, nor did his sons, although they may well not have cared about that. You see, they were not like their father. Even with the poignant memory of Eli's carelessness with regard to his wicked sons, things didn't work out so much better with Samuel's sons. Samuel had appointed them as judges, including Joel, his eldest, but they were dishonest men who preferred to justice for the sake of bribes. How could history have repeated itself? Samuel's busy professional life wouldn't have helped, but the situation was so well known that even the people could cite their failure as a justification for having a king to succeed Samuel and not his sons. But brighter days lay ahead. A grandson was born to Samuel who would have thrilled his heart if he'd lived to see how he developed. This is what we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 31. Now these are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. These are those who served with their sons. From the sons of the Kohathites were Haman, the singer, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. I hope you picked out there the words, Heman the singer. He was, we're told, a Kohathite, a Levite, a chief musician of the temple. And this is the main point, a grandson of Samuel. In fact, the inscription of the 88th Psalm bears his name. It seems he was given a leading part in the administration of the sacred services, certainly those aspects which involve music, judging by how the section was introduced. Heman is named among those in charge of the music. This was after the ark had finally come to rest at Jerusalem. Saul, the first king, had never cared much if the ark was around or not. Even after it had returned from enemy hands, it had lain for a long time in some backwater, we might say. It's described as being found in the field of the wood. But David had a totally different approach. He knew it symbolised God's presence and he didn't want to reign without it being beside him at Jerusalem. So he arranged to bring it up from where it had lain and bring it to Jerusalem, where it would remain ready for the temple his son Solomon would later build. You may recall David's first misguided attempt to fetch the ark to Jerusalem. It was misguided due to him not following the instructions God had given to Moses, specifying in some detail how the ark was to be transported. When he made a second attempt, this time going by the book, all went well, to David's great delight. It was also at this time that David introduced music into the sacred service of God in association with the temple. I say David introduced it, but it was explicitly authorised by God. 
There can be no novelties in divine service, as Aaron's sons had tragically discovered. Heman, the grandson of Samuel, became one of the music leaders. He celebrated joyfully the full return of the ark his grandfather had seen departing. Let's just take a moment to clarify what we've said there in case it's new to anyone. We've noted that musical instruments were first introduced into the service of God's house at the time of King David, after about 500 years of non-use. It wasn't that people had never dreamed of doing it before. Nationally, Israel had a tradition of using musical instruments to praise God in the commemoration of significant events like the Red Sea crossing, when Miriam took the timbrel in her hand. So for hundreds of years, instruments were readily available and using them in civic celebration was something that was spontaneously natural to them. But throughout all that time, neither instruments nor even singing itself was a feature of the people's collective worship of God in tabernacle service. David was a skilled musician and music seems surely to have enriched his personal life with God. This much comes through in the Psalms. Yet for all his aptitude and eagerness to use musical instrument on occasions, for example as he attempted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, the official incorporation of music had to await a very clear commandment from the Lord. It wasn't David's initiative just because it suited him, just because he happened to be gifted. So the use of musical instruments was endorsed by God in later Old Testament times for temple worship. But it's clear that the collective service of God's people, as centred on the temple, was even then still restricted to far fewer instruments than were permitted for more general, informal use by individuals or in social gatherings where God's name was magnified. In other words, there were instruments that weren't specified for temple worship, but which could find an acceptable, more informal use in civic celebrations. When we turn to the New Testament, the relevant commands, such as we find in Ephesians chapter 5.19 or Colossians 3.16, those commands and their exact wording emphasise singing as opposed to accompanied singing. Historically, the very early Christian practice was by all accounts simply one of singing. But are we to take this singing-only formula as part of the New Testament pattern for church worship? The non-mention of the use of musical instruments throughout the first century New Testament churches of God, coming as it does in between two periods of their recorded use, can be seen as being highly significant. Since instruments were available and had been, as we've seen, at times relevant, yet weren't evidently used in New Testament times, the argument from silence becomes a forceful one, showing that musical instruments are not part of the pattern for today. We might ask, why not? In this age, as distinct from when there was a physical house of God, in which physical things assisted in the service, worship is now specifically spiritual. The Lord in John chapter 4 talks about the character of worship in this age of spiritual sacrifices being in a spiritual house. And he made this very positive statement. He said that worship is to be in spirit and in truth. And that seems to imply the bypassing of additional things aimed at making the performance of the service more physically impressive.
sings a melody with heavenly harmony. In my heart there rings a melody, there rings a melody of love. Oh, for Christ who died on Calvary, for he washed my sins away. He floated in my heart a melody, and I know it's there to say. In my heart there rings a melody, there rings a melody with heavenly harmony. In my heart there rings a melody, there rings a melody of love. Once again, we have a free transcript book for this series. It's available to you by asking for the title Grandparents. You can order by email or by post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY UK. I'll say that again in case you didn't get it. It's The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info Also look out for the Search for Truth featuring on www.twr360.org And this will give you yet another excellent way of accessing again what you first heard here on air, if you go online of course. Unfortunately that's all we have for today and I hope you enjoyed being with us. Thanks for your interest in these programmes. We do enjoy your company. Next week we'll be learning from another biblical grandparent, so I hope you'll be able to join us then. So until next time, it's very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me, John. So cheerio, and may God richly bless you. <laughs>